Our gospel lesson today is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. This is where Jesus is speaking uh, in a discourse to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Emerson said, language is good as fairies and horses are for conveyance, but not as farms and houses are for homestead. Lord, may the words of this sermon, guided by your Spirit, lead us where you would have us go, rather than leave us where we are currently settled. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So for the past several weeks, we've been looking at different models by which Christians throughout history relate to the culture or civilization in which we live. Our vehicle for such consideration has been a theological classic written in 1951 by H. Richard Niebuhr entitled Christ and Culture. As those of you who have been here for any of the prior sermons know by now, the models are Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture in paradox, And today's model, Christ the Transformer of Culture. While Niebuhr stresses that no model exists in pure form and that most individuals and churches display two or more characteristics of the models, what we have sought to do is look at the strengths and weakness of each model, the scriptures out of which they have emerged, and the theologians who have brought the models to articulation. We've done this to see ourselves within these models, to understand our faith, our church, our world a bit more wisely, and to grow in our service as we grow in our wisdom. Though we end our formal consideration of these five models today, we have one more sermon in the series, which is next week entitled, Christ and Culture, What Now? But today we look at Christ, the transformer of culture. 
Unlike in previous sermons in this series, I want to begin today's sermon with autobiography and personal reflection. I do so because my initial zeal for the Christian faith was more enlivened by this model than any of the other four that we have considered. As I have told virtually every new member class that I've taught and every confirmation class that I have visited at Westminster, and as I've shared with you before in sermons, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s in the suburbs of Memphis, Tennessee, in what we would have called in those days a normal nuclear family. The three pillars of life were school, which I loved, sports at which I was relatively good but intensely competitive, and the Presbyterian Church, which was a warm, nurturing community of similar families against which I never felt the need to rebel. I had two experiences, one in history at the front end of my teen years and one in family at the back end that ended the normalcy but transformed my relationship with the church from being positive to being central in my life. The historical event was when Dr. Martin Luther King came to Memphis when I was 13 ultimately losing his life there. Apart from its place in our nation's history, what was important about that event for me was the surprising awareness to which I came that the minister of our small congregation, in a quiet, pastoral way, supported Dr. King and the racial integration for which he stood. The minister's support matched and met an unformed childhood sense that I had had for several years that the separation of the races that I observed around me was not right and that there had to be a better way than the attitudes that gave rise to that separation, the attitudes that I saw in so many kids and adults of my childhood. When Dr. King came to town and I learned that our minister supported him, I felt that I had found that better way in the small, white-framed, colonial Presbyterian church whose Sunday school I attended at whose family camps we were regulars, and whose weeds we pulled and lawn we mowed on congregational work days. The second event that happened during my the second event happened during my first year of college. As I've shared before, over Christmas break, my father at age forty three was diagnosed with cancer. He passed away six weeks later. During the time he was ill and the months afterwards, you can imagine how people in a 300-member congregation 
in which everyone seemed to have a mother and a father and two kids and a dog and a station wagon surrounded us with support who had lost the father and husband and breadwinner in the early prime of life. If you can imagine what that was like. That is the support we received and that is support that I have never forgotten. Because of these two experiences, I've never been away from the church. I've never been away from the faith that the church professes. Even in times of rough sledding as a pastor or in moments of doubt or distance as a Christian. These two events are why I'm a minister today. In terms of the Christ and culture question, in the sermon series in which we have been lodged the past few weeks, I realize that the first experience, my minister's support of Dr. King, was a manifestation of one segment of Christianity, a small, established, southern, mainline, Protestant denomination, influencing its members toward change during one period of our nation's history. My formative experience of faith was thus seeing Christ help transform the culture into which I happened to be born. It was a transformation that made a difference in history and a transformation that made a difference in my life. In the intervening years, many things about our culture have changed. But what has resonated most for me, specifically in reading Niebuhr's Christ and Culture now for the fourth time, is the resonance that I have with his articulation of the underlying theology, specifically with his understanding of Jesus Christ that gave rise to the brief but important transformation of culture that I was privileged to witness as a teenager. I want to share that understanding of Christ with you today and the concern for human transformation to which it has led me since those early formative experiences of my faith. Richard Niebuhr is terrific in both his description of Christ and of the eloquence with which he expresses it. When I first read the chapter on Christ, the Transformer of Culture, in 2002, I wrote on its first page, quote, Terrific mainline theology, pages 190 to 196, exclamation point, exclamation point. When I went and reread that chapter in preparation for this series, I would not take those exclamation points away, and I might add two or three more to them. Niebuhr begins by saying that Christ, the transformer of culture, represents the great central tradition of the Christian church. He applauds the transformational model, as do I, for holding fast to the distinction 
between God's work in Christ on the one hand and humanity's work and responsibility for culture on the other hand. At the same time, Niebuhr's focus on the distinctiveness of Christ apart from culture does not isolate, reject, spiritualize, trivialize, or diminish human culture in any way. No aspect of human culture, politics or economics, learning or leisure, business or commerce, personal relationships or intimacy, lie outside the sovereign presence of God in Jesus Christ. Thus at the outset, Niebuhr acknowledges the importance of both Christ and culture and the former's involvement with the latter through those of us who seek to follow him. Unlike in earlier models that we've seen, Niebuhr does not view Christ primarily as the giver of a new law, as a great teacher offering counsel and ideals, as a representative of the best in humanity. Rather, Niebuhr sees Jesus Christ as, a, as the divine redeemer, as the one we encounter personally and directly in life and in history, as the one who lives among us in great humility, enduring death for our sakes, and rising again from the grave as a demonstration of God's grace towards us and towards all of creation. When it comes to the all-important question of sin, Niebuhr says that in the Christ-transforming culture model, sin is believed to be deeply rooted in the human soul. It pervades all human effort and achievement, including the many good works that we do in culture and the many efforts we make to seek and follow God's will. In my, in my opinion, one of the strengths of Niebuhr's argument and of the transforming model is that both acknowledge that even when we are seeking to transform culture in what we believe God wants it to be, we can be wrong, dead wrong. Sin is as present at the altar as it is at the courthouse. It is as much a part of destructive words coming from the pulpit as words found in pulp fiction. Sin can be as present in the incendiary pages of religious editorials as it can be present in the demagogue's open mic. I know this to be true. For leaders of the very denomination in which I saw transformation occur as a child were over a hundred years earlier some of the most articulate and influential apologists for slavery in America and their, their apology was crafted on their interpretation and understanding of biblical texts. Niebuhr does not shrink back from leading the church to say we have met the enemy and they are us. 
when it comes to the transforming model's view of culture. It is a more positive and hopeful view than previous models, with the possible exception of the Christ of culture Christians. This is evident in the view that Christ's transforming culture has of creation, of fall, and of human history. In the transforming model, the creative activity of God and God in Christ is a major theme. Christians who adhere to this model seek an equal, see an equal and overlapping participation of the Word, the Son of God, with God at creation. In the beginning was the Word, we say, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through Him, the Word, the Son, Christ, and without Him, not one thing came into being. In the transforming model, Christians see the redemptive work of God as occurring in the birth and incarnation of Christ, not simply in the death and resurrection. Christmas is as important to transforming Christians as Easter is because both stress redemption, both stress healing, both stress salvation, both stress care for the world and its creation. Consistent with these views of creation, this model takes seriously, as I've said before, the fall of the human race. It views the fall, however, as a reversal of creation not a continuation, making it clear that the fall, the entrance of human sin into the world, is the action and responsibility of humanity, not of God. It views the fall as moral and personal, emphasizing that it is an act of human will. It views the world as a corrupted order rather than that an order that has been created for corruption. And it views evil as a perversion of good rather than as badness of being, something given at creation. Further, the transforming model sees culture as standing in the need of prayer, standing in the need of conversion, Standing in the need of revival rather than standing in the need of destruction and replacement. Though the needed transformation in this model is so radical that it can sometimes appear to be replacement. God makes all things new, says this model, not God makes all new things. And finally concerning history. Christ, the transformer of culture, sees all things as possible in a history that is fundamentally not merely a course of human events, but is a dramatic interaction between God and humanity. It views history as the story of God's mighty deeds and humanity's responses to them. It sees eternal life as a quality of existence that comes from above 
you must be born on a thing from above, but begins here and now with divine possibility for present renewal. This affirms that human culture can be transformed communally and personally and lived to the glory of God. These positive views of creation and culture and transformation find resonance in most of Jesus' words in John's Gospel. For God so loved the world, Jesus says, that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have this eternal life from above. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, Jesus says, but in order that the world, the world, might be saved through him. Jesus clearly believes that human beings have choice as to whether to follow the light he is or to remain in the darkness that he has come to overcome. So having begun this sermon with personal reflection and then moved to theology, let me return to reflection here at the end. Nearly 20 years ago, which would have been another 20 years after my formative experiences, I had an informal discussion with two leaders of the congregation I was serving at the time that led me to say, to both think about and say, that there are three matters that my Christian faith has over time led me to feel deeply and passionately about concerning the role of Christ and the church and even our own nation in the world. These grow out of the theology that I've just articulated, but they are not the only things that could grow out of such theology. They are simply where that theology has led me. One of the concerns that I have had for decades is genocide. It has always led me, at least instinctively, to support or yearn for the use of force, for military intervention on the part of our nation against regimes that brutalize and slaughter their own citizens or citizens of other tribes or nations. This has at times led me to be a stranger among clergy peers who rightly are often more averse than I am to support the use of force. Though there have been times that my head has prevailed over the instincts of my heart and I have been persuaded that intervention is not the best or most realistic course, my heartfelt sense remains that if Christ is going to transform culture at all, I hope he will begin with taking on 
its most brutal elements. A second issue that is deeply rooted in my faith in Christ is not unrelated to the first. It is intervention on behalf of people who are abused, particularly women and children who are the victims of domestic violence or sexual abuse in our country and the many around the world, and yes, even in our country, who live in virtual slavery. Again, as Christ transforms culture, my prayer is that he place the rescue of people from slavery and abuse high on his list. A third issue that has in recent years proved to be the shakiest is my instinctive support for democracy and my desire that it spread to all nations and cultures. Jesus' stress on choice in the Gospel of John leads me to celebrate and stress political freedom as fundamental to God's intention for all people. But it seems that not all cultures in which we might like to see democracy planted have the conditions that seem necessary for it to take root and grow. And sometimes the way we have tried to plant it seems to hinder its taking root. Perhaps sin is even more embedded in human culture and in the human effort to change culture than I have realized, as dark as my views usually are. The resistance of some cultures to democracy saddens me and it chastens me. But if I remain true to the Christ who claims to have come, that all may have life and have it abundantly. And if I acknowledge that the abundant life Christ intends begins here on earth and speaks to a quality of life here and now as well as in the life to come, I must not give up on any efforts that I sense Christ is making to transform the world towards freedom and democracy, nor any role that he might have myself as a Christian, our church, or our nation play. In the second century, an unknown author wrote a man named Diognetus describing members of a newly discovered sect called Christians. He said, Inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and ordinary conduct, Christians display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking mode of life. Next Sunday... I will sketch some ways, which at this point remain unformed, that I think we as Christians might be called to live our wonderful and confessedly striking mode of life 
in the culture in which our lot has determined that we shall live. Amen.